Well, it's a Western song. It's got to be theatrical. There was vengeance and redemption and saloons, and it was just a, such a unique piece of history of the world. This is the biggest example for me of a communication barrier. It's always fun to do. We can't do it with a straight face. But yeah, anytime you hear the Merry Men come out, it's, uh, it's always a good time. <laughs> everybody and welcome to tracks the official avenge sevenfold podcast that takes you through the avenge sevenfold back catalog one banger at a time i am your host bees and it is an honor and a privilege to be with you as always especially today as we are going all western we'll get to that in a minute please do subscribe to the podcast we've brought you the story to songs such as roman sky welcome to the family not ready to die trashed and scattered we are slowly but surely making our way through all of the Avenged Sevenfold songs and there are some very and I do mean very exciting things coming in the next few months that nobody is going to want to miss out on so make sure you've subscribed to the podcast today we are going balls deep on strength of the world it is in my anything but humble opinion one of the most important songs on City of Evil and not only that I think there's an argument to be made for creativity and for the long distance of Avenged Sevenfold's career, it's one of the most important songs in their canon. But we'll get to that, as well as the guys taking us through Western movies and the musical genius of Ennio Morricone, how you get fired from an Avenged Sevenfold backing vocal session. Pretty brutal on that front. There's the musical exploits of not only Sinister Gates, but Senior Gates and much much more stick around for that but first just a little housekeeping from us before we dive into that shiznit join us on the death bats club discord to ask questions for this show join the rad community over there we've seen it you guys have been meeting up all over the world it's super cool to see and if you are a death bats club holder we do hope that you enjoyed your surprise over the holiday season there was a happy holidays of n7 NFT that went out to all DBC holders and speaking of NFTs don't forget you can win a one of one NFT that serves as the official art for strength of the world just keep an eye on the DBC discord and there'll be details in there but as well 
as a one of one NFT. Every single month when we do this show, there is a T-shirt that is a limited edition drop that features the artwork to this song. If you want the Strength of the World shirt, you're going to have to be fast. It's a limited edition drop. AvengeSevenfoldWorld.com to go and get involved with that. And the art this month is done by the incredible British stud that goes by the name Dead Format. That's right, Dead Format. I called you a stud. He is a self-taught digital artist of supreme talent who's done so many cool things like the sold-out DFMC cassettes. Those are like cassette tapes that have the traits of your favorite rock stars. Super cool. His heavy metal zombie series is elite. And you can keep up with all of his comings and goings on socials at Dead Format MC. That is is enough waffle from your boy. Let's get to the episode. So this is a podcast where we had a little bit of tech difficulties. It means we lost a couple of the DBC questions. A music theory with sin had to be touched up a little bit, but we were recording over Christmas. And frankly, those are small details in an episode that kicks this much Ass. I'm going to stop talking. Let's get enjoying. This is the story of Straight Out the World. I think it's um, important in context because I think if you take something like The Wicked End, and it shows that we could write Danny Elfman-esque string arrangements. But then you go a song later, and then it shows that we can write an Ennio Morcone-influenced Western, right? So it wasn't like we have one style and we kind of sit in our lane. It was like, no, we, we, really, we really study these, these musical pieces, and we kind of try to figure out the essence of them. And I think that can be a really cool thing and it can be a, a bad thing because there's some artists that I just love how they, they just forge their own sound. And I feel like we've always been kind of chameleons where we can kind of take a bunch of things that we like and though it has its own sound, we're definitely borrowing deeply from um, really cool cultural kind of things. These, you know, like a Danny Elfman sounds like Danny Elfman and a, Ennio Morcone sounds like Ennio Morcone, but we can kind of sit in there and go like, well, we can do both those and we can make it sound cool with metal. Um, but I do highly respect these artists that kind of really master their own lane and their own craft. But I think it's important because when you look at those two songs, it shows that, that we kind of know our way around the music. Um, and I think um, that's really cool. It's a different flavor, right? Like you're, you're rolling through this record and then all of a sudden from Beast in the Harlot to Backcountry to, to this, like what? And I, and I, and I think one thing that we do that because we, we really, and I know we have, we fall into this sometimes with things like maybe so far away or like seize the day, but we try to stay as far away from generic rock as possible. We try to stay as far away from like eighties ballads. And I know people love them. And obviously the success of those other two songs just proves that like, if you can do a, a good ballad, people like it, but it really isn't what we like to do. And we try to stay as much away from the uh, leather pant, butt wiggle eighties ballad as we can. And so something like strength of the world to us is like way more satisfying. It was a pretty important song for us. We, um, I think it was probably the first 
one of the first ones. You know, certainly it was the first album where we started taking, you know, a lot of time to do really adventurous tracks. This one was super ambitious. Um, it was in a day where you couldn't reference things. So like a little secret of ours, and I think we're pretty transparent about this, but you know, we, we definitely game genie the fuck out of our music and, um, and there's an art art to it. And it's basically listening to songs, listening to, to, to music, listening to, um, movies. I mean, it's, it's pretty simple, straightforward, but I think where a lot of artists kind of maybe hear something, we, we delve into the chord changes and, you know, because I think there's some education we can kind of really dig considerably deep into tracks and influences and, and, and really just paint a schematic of, of what we want to do pretty, pretty easily. Now, when you want to weave in, you know, an original melody and, and, and you want it to be great and you want to love it and you, and everybody has to feel all those things simultaneously that's where it gets tough, but to, to sketch out a song these days of exactly what you want, um, I'm not going to lie, it's, it's pretty easy um, because all the, the test material is, is there. But back in the day, not so much. And this, was, uh, this is the biggest example for me of a communication um, barrier where Matt wanted an epic Western crazy song. I grew up on Westerns, but I hadn't seen one of the quintessential ones, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And Ennio Marconi wasn't even on my radar then. So the what Matt was referring to was Ecstasy of Gold. But because of that point in time, um, we couldn't just go dial up the movie. Couldn't go, you know, you saw it on, on TV or whatever it was. I didn't have a computer then. I don't know if... Um, I certainly wasn't internet savvy. I don't even think anybody in the band had a computer then. I think it was right after CD of Evil where we started getting smarter phones, laptops, and, and doing, doing deeper dives and stuff on, on internet. So to be able to just say, hey, I want to listen to Ecstasy of Gold, which Matt didn't even know the name of it. He, he just, you know, wanted a good, bad, and the ugly uh, style Western. And I had no clue. So I just dug deep from... My thing, and and he's just like, no, that's not kind of it. And I was probably playing like country or something. Who knows? But I remember it being super hard to to put together his vision for that. I remember being really into the orchestration and and kind of taking over a little of that and just being super ambitious and Scott Gilman, a friend of Mudrocks, our producer orchestrated that song. We did the bones of it, but at that point we had limited technology, you know, we had Casios, I'm sure or whatever. So like trumpets didn't sound very good. Strings didn't sound very good. So it didn't sound good, but, but I, you know, I wanted to be more am- ambitious with it. So we kind of settled for a middle ground, getting it, uh, uh, you know, up to snuff to where we could listen to a demo at this point. It was still demoed out as uh, on a MIDI, but he was obviously much further advanced on MIDI than we were. So when he started putting it together and showing us, it was like, oh, this is going to be like 
cinematic. Like, like th- this shit should go in a movie. Like, I remember thinking that I was 20 years old at the time, you know. And I was like, oh, this is going to be in a movie. This is incredible. Like, this is a Western. This is like a new Western could put this in there and it would be, and it would work. It would be fucking awesome. The way we communicate now with a ton of different references and different things, we didn't have that then. So we had to struggle through trying to understand each other. But we, we definitely did some damage and I'm, I'm super proud of doing a song of that type of depth. It was huge. It was a monumental, you know, new sound for us. And we were pulling from different uh, inspirations. And on Waking the Fallen, you know, we had brought in some orchestration and it was kind of, you know, Danny Elfman, uh, Tim Burton-esque inspired. And this time we were just drawing from different influences that were completely different, but stuff that we were recently turned on to that we fully fell in love with and embraced. And in the case of Strength of the World, you know, you can really hear the Ennio Morricone influence. And we were inspired by Quentin Tarantino bringing in this dialogue-driven narrative that's just so over the top. And we're like, why don't we apply that to the new songs? And if you listen to the song, you can hear us probably taking it a little bit too far. And I think that's what fans actually like. And I think that's kind of why it worked. And looking back, there's so much going on in a song like that. If you listen, and this is so funny to me, but if you listen from about the first minute and a half to about four minutes later, there's never ever a moment where there's not vocals happening, not even for one second. And it's almost like a, a hard rock Western acapella on top of guitar riffs and heavy drumming. And there's this huge dynamic impact when we go into this Western Morricone feeling kind of epic and along with the storytelling and it's just such a crazy and cool place we were at that time. Yeah, I just wanted to delve a little more deeply into what this says about Avenged Sevenfold and what they were doing as opposed to where metal was at this point in time. Because this song, Strength of the World, and its fearless, limitless directions speak so much about the disregard that this band has always had for metal's various trends. Me personally, I love a whole shitload of metalcore, but I can't for the life of me imagine one of Unearth in a cowboy hat. Do you know what I mean? Waking the Fallen had its own parameters, right? And you have to think at the time... Because a lot of people, like, you know, they forget quickly that there was bands like Poison the Well and Vision of Disorder that were doing what Waking the Fallen was doing before us. Like, they were influencing us, you know? And the Waking the Fallen had that big breakthrough, and then people go, oh, they invented that whole... And it's like, no, no, no. But we had more punk, right? We had punk rock involved where that... None of those bands had kind of mixed punk rock. Our, our thing on Waking the Fallen was, like, Bad Religion and No Effects meets Pantera and Metallica where I think the other bands were being more influenced by like New York hardcore and some different things. And, you know, like the quicksands and the shelters of the world. But I think that had its own parameters where we were, you know, it was kind of that sing, scream, sing, scream. It didn't really lend itself to go do full on any more cone. But once we were doing only singing vocals, we really wanted to spread our wings musically because that was where we were going to make the kind of difference in what people were hearing. Cause it wasn't going to be back and forth vocally. We really spread our wings on that, We and we really started bringing in all the influences. I mean, obviously, The Wicked End was almost like a precursor to A Little Piece of Heaven, you know, like using the Danny Elfman-esque sort of arrangements.
this record was just a complete experiment. And looking back, I'm just proud of us for going that far. coming up but let's just get to talking about westerns the old west spaghetti westerns if you will and just how interesting it is that that particular genre of movies is such an influence on the members of Avenged Sevenfold I think as some of the guys are about to explain westerns are particularly pertinent to America as a cultural movement you can hear I am not from America but I can give props to some of the movies that came out as I was growing up. Like, I love Sam Raimi's The Quick and the Dead. If you have not seen that movie and you fancy a Western, that is a good one. And I think as something that's part of the fabric of the world, it's America that really tells the tales of the Old West and it's part of their heritage. It's part of their bloodstream in America. And that's interesting to see how it creeps its way into the makeup of Avenged Sevenfold. Well, I'm a fan of Western movies. To start off with that, I wouldn't say like I'm a. You could probably bring up plenty that I haven't seen, or you know. So I'm not going to sit here and say I'm like the most fanatical Western guy. But probably my favorite movie of all time happens to be a Western movie, and that's Tombstone. So that's that's uh, that's one for me that uh, I saw opening day on Christmas at the movie theater with my family. I remember the, the it very well. And then watching it over and over again, um, I was actually able to, at one point, quote the movie from beginning to end without it actually being on. And uh, I did that I did that in uh, our old van one time for Jimmy on a long ride. Uh, I, I recounted the entire movie for him. So... Um, yeah, I mean, I love that movie. I love certain Western movies I've seen. I mean, Good, Bad, and the Ugly, of course, is such a great classic one. And um, the music, the music in the Westerns is always something that I really gravitated towards, too. The music and, and the one-liners. I think Western is great for music and one-liners. I'll put it that way. Movies like Hang 'em High, Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, Clint Eastwood films, um, Ennio Morricone, who was doing a lot of the soundtracks of those things, really fostered his own style. And growing up, my dad and a bunch of people, I don't, and I can only speak for what I know, you know, in America here or in California and, or whatever, you know, we were brought up in culturally, those were huge movies and those were huge influences and how the West was won and the gunslinger sort of mentality um, of, you know, as America was sort of putting itself together and trying to figure out, get its bearings, you know, like you're talking about a bunch of people that came across the country into the West coast and it was a gold rush. And there was all these um, certain um, little towns with sheriffs and they were all kind of governing themselves. And there was vengeance and redemption and uh, gunfighting and saloons. And it was just a, such a, if you think about it, it was such a unique piece of history of the world. And then we were watching these movies and then there was this guy, Enio, who, created this soundtrack to these things that was just kind of um, different and incredible. And so we got influenced by it, you know, and, and I think another thing that gave us more confidence in that influence was hearing Metallica be influenced by it, deeply influenced. And think about ecstasy of gold and how they enter their shows and all this. I mean, these are all things that come from that world. And I think strength of the world was really just kind of us trying to 
figure out if we could do something like that and then add heavy metal to it. Just because we like to pop the bubble on some of the rumours that surround Avenged Sevenfold songs on this show, there is a bit of a groundswell, an opinion that I have read more than once, that Kill Bill and the more desert-leaning moments of that movie were an influence on this song, but it is something that Matt is quick to debunk. No, I don't think... I mean, Kill Bill was a huge, huge movie in my life. Um, All the Quentin movies are. And Quentin is a super fan of Ennio. Obviously, Ennio was doing things for him later. And he may have used some things in that movie, but I, I don't remember that being an influence on this particular song. This particular song was very much Clint Eastwood, you know, old... There's another one that... Oh, Once Upon a Time in the West. That may have come later, but that to me is one of Ennio's greatest... And it's one of the greatest spaghetti westerns of all time. But that that movie and and that soundtrack to me was like the pinnacle of everything we were trying to do in this. So I wouldn't say it was Quentin. I think we were being influenced the same way Quentin was being influenced by those older films and those older um, soundtracks. As we've spoken about in the past, we will do in the future, and I am currently doing so in the present on tracks. We're going to be talking about the fact that Avenged Sevenfold are influenced by cinema, but as we're about to hear from the band's guitar-playing duo, it's about more than just the pictures, the stories, and the characters that weave their way into Avenged Sevenfold's music. There's a whole atmosphere going on that the band are happy to draw from. It's always been there since we were, you know, just young punk rocker, hardcore metal kids. We'd find inspiration from anything that invoked a certain feeling. And movies are so great for that. You know, we've we've drawn from the way a movie like Melancholia makes you feel and kind of just that depressed kind of tone and vibe. And we wanted to incorporate and make people feel that sort of feeling in songs when they're listening to us and all the obviously all the the Tim Burton stuff that Danny Elfman had done really brings you to a different place you know when you listen to the Beetlejuice soundtrack or the Batman soundtrack or I mean any of his soundtracks really the Edward Scissorhands is just so exactly what it needs to be for the movie and the feeling and you know to this day we still draw influence from I mean just about anything from you know Bands, classic bands, classical bands, movies, art, video games. I mean, anything that's, you know, just something that makes us feel a certain way. We want to take elements from that and try and apply it back into the music. Otherwise, music gets really boring. And there's a lot of bands just trying to write a great song or just trying to follow a formula or just trying to, you know, find success because another band has done something. It's like, that's just the complete wrong way for a band like us to go about it. And that's why every album's new and ambitious and over the top and as bold as we can make it. Like I said, I was I was born and raised on like John Wayne movies and stuff of that nature, uh, which is my my father's hero, the Lonesome Dove five part series or whatever, whatever it was, and Beast of a Movie um, with Robert Duvall and stuff. I mean, those were kind of the soundtracks in, in essence, or you know, the, the backgrounds of my my upbringing. I was very close to my grandparents, you know, and so a lot of jazz, a lot of western. My grandfather would play harmonica. All this. So my maybe my upbringing was a little bit more quirky, so maybe I added a little bit of, of quirkiness. And I don't think that, you know, Matt necessarily 
had that background and I, I don't know of any other guys. Maybe Johnny has a little bit of that um, where they would sit and watch Westerns, Western after Western with, um, with family members and stuff. But, but I was very, very excited about it. So from that aspect, it was an exciting conversation um, to have. It wasn't something that I would have thought to do there. Um, and it was a great learning experience because it, it let me know that we can do anything. And just because it says Western on it or it says jazz doesn't mean that it's going to be novelty straight out of, you know, Bertha Cool or straight out of, you know, Spaghetti Western, Ennio Morricone soundtrack. It's going to be us. And, and it gave us a lot of confidence to pursue descriptions like that, adjectives that could lead to really unique places um, that we wouldn't have thought to go. So it, it was kind of the genesis of of really exploring the art form, um, music writing a, a lot deeper. We're about to talk about the sound of Westerns and you've heard the name Ennio Morricone a bunch of times so far and we're going to get to that very shortly because I think... If we were playing The Family Feud and we were asked Western's top composer, that would be the top answer. So, Ennio Morricone, born 10th of November 1928 in Rome. He's someone with a huge fingerprint across film and TV and music. Like, you will know the ecstasy of gold from the good, the bad and the ugly, even if you don't know that song by name. Metallica use it as their intro tape before they hit the stage every night. I mean, Radiohead have spoken about Morricone. He did a Morrissey record as producer. Hans Zimmer worships at his altar. Basically, he's the fucking man on all levels. And here's the guys to explain why. Well, I mean, he single-handedly set a tone for an entire genre you know spaghetti western this gunslinger type you know dirty gritty deserty western vibes and he does it all through the use of violins cellos violas um in such a masterful way and you know his work when you hear it because it's so unique to what he does and and for us i mean living in southern california being a stone's throw away from las vegas making that drive so many times, you know, it inspired stuff like backcountry, you know, driving through the desert, just driving by cactuses, just a whole lot of nothing out there. And but it's such a great vibe. And and hearing his soundtracks and what they do for the movies that he's placed them in, it really just it makes you feel like you're set back in a different time period. Uh, it just brings you to a different world. And you know, that's just a huge part of who we are and where we come from. And we wanted to incorporate some of that music into our heavy metal album. I think that it's his abuse, uh, like beautiful abuse of particular instruments. Like on the hateful eight, it is just a fucking clinic in dark contrabassoon. You know, it's just fucking freakish to me i forget what there's another classic spaghetti western that that he did where it's like this uh it's a it's like one of the most highest rated songs matt matt would know it's this guitar i'm sure it's like a fender into uh like a strat into something but it's, it's the most tinnious abusive guitar surf western guitar thing i've ever heard and it's just it's fucking brilliant you know 
And then to me, the arpeggiated thing of ecstasy of gold. And then the fucking, the choir in it. It's just, he's unmistakable in, in melody and arrangement. And then vibe. I mean, I mean, he, he encapsulates it all. To be to be honest, but yeah, he can he can change the way you think about an instrument, or change the way you approach an instrument, which is what I love about Ennio. He was as important to those movies as the movies were. When you think of the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, and the and all these sorts of like things that are happening, like the like the whistle and all that, like all that stuff is very simple. Like the things he's doing, like, I mean, there's complexity beneath the surface, but it's almost like riffs, right? Like he's got these little spurts of like genius and he just repeats them over and over and they just get sunk into your subconscious. And if you listen to any of those movies, you know the movie by the little jingle that he's made. And that jingle isn't the correct word, but it, it is a little jingle. Like what, like when you listen to, I mean, any of his films, and I don't even know if like, Strength of the World captured that probably not as well as he did, but he just had that. He was writing riffs, right? And and he had some crazy tones. Like there's some tones that are very hard to even like listen to, but they're like they make a point. Um, Once upon a time in the West, that's one soundtrack where if you listen to it, there's some guitar tones in there, and you're just like, what the heck were they thinking? But it's rad because then you like, it's inspiration, right? So I think simplicity, I think just this knack for a catchy jingle within three to four notes and just repetitiveness. And he also reinvents himself. When you listen to like um, the soundtrack for Hateful Eight, it doesn't sound like him, which is cool. There's like these very ballsy, dark instruments the whole time, which really fit the film with the snow and the darkness of that film and dove into these things and really was able to tell a story with a few notes. Let's bring this back to strength of the world itself and the narrative of the song. As I flagged at the top of this podcast, this is a song about revenge. Vengeance is a massive part of this song, you know. I want it, I need it, revenge is dripping from my teeth. And when you hear those lyrics, I came into this episode thinking that this was an angry song and, you know, little peep behind the curtain, but Sinister Gates was the first to be interviewed for this episode. Here's what he said when I asked him if Strength of the World is an angry song. No, it's a... It's a little, it's a, it's a story. It's a cute little fucking story of revenge, you know, a typical story of revenge. It's, um, back in the day, I, you know, I, I don't know if I thought very much about these lyrics, um, then, but, but I appreciate them as I'm getting older. So I'm maturing into, you know, a young adult here. I really appreciate Matt's ability to, to paint a picture, I he's fearless in letting go of like everything needing to be abstract for the case for the mere sake of it being abstract. My story starts the day they said you can't be found. The new so dark, our stops silent without a sound. In the interest of Sin being interviewed first, here's what happened when I asked him if he thought Matt would say that this is an angry song. I I would bet that he'd say no. 
I, I think that he would probably align a little bit more with me, although I don't know. I mean, we, you know, we've, we've definitely been down, you know, these, these paths of, of mindfulness, we'll call it mindfulness and, and not, um, drug obsessions <laughs> or, or I, I hope it's mindfulness. It, it feels good. Um, but to where you, you would take a, a thing like that, it's a story. I and mean, I don't think that Matt's ever felt that. So, so it's, it's coming from a person who's trying to tell a story, like more of an intellectual, a, an observer, um, a, in a journalistic sort of way. And so if, if that's where it's coming from, maybe, at that point, he tried to put himself in those shoes somehow, and maybe he, you can feel certain things. People have different talents of being able to exercise those those things in your in your mind, perform a thought experiment, and really get yourself riled up. Was he doing it then? I, I don't know. Um, but if it came from a journalistic sort of thing, telling a tale, then then yeah, I don't think there was an angry bone in his body. Nothing's dead killed all who crossed me in my path Suicidal, I never planned on coming back I mean, obviously it's more for Matt to, to answer, but I believe truly that it was more us uh, and Matt with his lyrics taking that kind of storyteller element something that like what an iron maiden would do and trying to find these cool stories that you create and then make a soundtrack for it and we did that a lot in our in the early days we were you know songs like chapter four are you know taken from the bible the story of cain and abel and we kind of elaborate on that and i think that was kind of heavily in iron maiden influenced and beast and the harlot were built you know these stories these long opuses of Matt's storytelling of stuff that was intriguing to him. And as we've gotten older, it's been more about reflection and inflection, like on ourselves. And, you know, with the stage, it was more about the universe and um, technology and our place in the universe and what's happening politically and what matters. And with the, the new album, it's more about just looking inside ourselves and, you know, what are we truly you know, in this universe, you know, we're basically, we're everything and we're nothing at the same time and just coming to grips with that and understanding. And I think that comes with maturity, but when you're young, it was kind of just, wow, this is so cool to us. Um, let's tell a story about this vengeful killer that's, you know, going to save his family's honor and go out there in the desert and shoot a bunch of fucking bad guys. It's hanging on that thread that Western music and movies portrays you know it's it's a story of 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 revenge and and um i think that plays into it so well revenge and what's coming next you know something's coming but what is it you know i, I don't think it's angry it's it's just it's more calculated than that anger anger to me is just is way more like you know just rage uh uncontrollable um this is more calculated it's revenge it's danger in, in my opinion Do I consider Strength of the World an angry song? Um, 
no, I've never thought of it in that way. But now that I'm thinking of the chorus, it's a little bit of, I mean, what a juxtaposition, right? It's like Ennio Morcone meets um, hardcore gang vocals <laughs> meets like the, like obviously the whiniest vocals on the record, very Dave Mustaine. I don't consider it an angry song. Trashed and scattered and burn it down are a little more angry. He's being polite there, isn't he? All right, I accept it. Strength of the World is not an angry song. Strength of the World is a tale about great vengeance and not furious anger, because that ultimately is the theme of this song. The concept behind vengeance as a central theme without anger also feels very the Old West, right? Revenge without anger, cold-blooded, as the song itself says. But... There's something a little deeper to explore here conceptually. Not all extreme actions, thoughts and words have to be fueled by extreme emotions. Like the expression is revenge is a dish best served cold. It perfectly encapsulates what the guys are talking about and the vibe of this song. So I guess the big question is can vengeance be a healthy emotion? Uh, absolutely, absolutely not. No, 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 no. Now, um, breathing and fucking witnessing what your pain feels like from afar as an observer, getting your heart rate under control, getting your cortisol rates uh, under control, um, getting your fight or flight under control, that's healthy. Feelings of rage and vengeance, nah, that'll fucking kill you. I, I think that, you know... If you ever felt wronged or slighted, and every one of us does all throughout our lives, it pisses you off. You take those emotions, they make you angry, they make you upset, they make you want to lash out at the world. And and sometimes people do that in the complete wrong way. There's a way, you know, and I've, I've always said this, but there's definitely a way to harness those feelings and emotions. And honestly, it's not beating yourself up. It's going out and doing what you do, trying to be better than you've ever been. Take what you love to do, the relationships that you have, make them better, you know, find love, find strength, find happiness, go out, travel the world, do everything you can to make yourself better. And you will always leave that experience feeling like you have the upper hand on whoever wronged you or slighted you. You know, if you're in the old West and somebody kills your family, I'd say, you know, you probably want to take a six shooter and, and go get the old fashioned vengeance. But you know, I, I don't think a self, self-help is going to be the remedy for, for that particular situation. And it just comes from, you know, getting older and a little wiser. The, the happier you are, the more successful you are, the people on the other side see you and they scowl, you know. You want them to come up too if, if they figure it out. But in the meantime, it's always a good feeling to have the upper hand on that. I think um, turn the other cheek is probably a healthy emotion or, or, or a healthy uh, way to look at it. Vengeance is usually just ego playing out and, you know, but sometimes things are so black and white that it seems like vengeance is the only answer. You know, um, if you uh, think about somebody, you know, that was hurt and they were hurt in a, um, in a way that wasn't an accident, then I can see that vengeance may be, you know, your, some sort of retribution would be your only answer. It's one of those survival the fittest human emotions for sure. 
We are about to go off-road. In fact, this is something that we haven't done thus far on tracks. So each of these episodes are lovingly crafted and I interview each of the guys separately and then we put it together and tell the story of the song, right? That's how it works. But with Johnny here, he and I had such a great conversation about whether or not vengeance could be a healthy emotion it feels right to just play you the raw audio of the conversation that johnny and myself had so buckle up it's quite a trip and stick around because there's still music theory with sin the length of this song and some absolute gold when it comes to gang vocals and the introduction of the merry men but for now enjoy johnny and i talking about whether vengeance can be a healthy emotion or not that's an existential question, right? That, <laughs> no, this is, this, is, this is what I love about podcasting. Like, that's the allure for me. You know, that's why I started my own, you know? That's, that's the, I like when I don't know where the conversation's going to go. And I think you're right. Like, that, that existential question right there. Like, can, how does that bring in mental health and uh, lifestyle? Like, is, can you be on the right side uh, truly with vengeance in your heart? Like, I don't know. I don't know. That's a, that's a really good question. Uh, you know, you'd like to think, oh, if I was going to, you know, if I was going to get back at someone, it would be for something that's fucking awful, you know, killed a family member or something like that. Like I would come back and be calculated on how I would handle that, you know. Does that make me right though? Or is, you know, like I, I don't know. I, 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 that's a moral juncture right there. Like where do you go? On the one hand, yeah, you want your vengeance. On the other hand, it's like, what does it matter? Like that's not bringing anyone back. You know, if we're, if the scenario is, 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 is they murdered your family, right? Let's use, use that as a, as one of many ideas here, but yeah, like how would you, and then after it's all done, do you, how do you feel? Do you have remorse or do you have happiness? You know what I mean? Like, I hope I never have to go down this road, but it's fun to pretend. Right. Um, yeah, I just, I, I don't know that there's a right answer there. Cause I mean, like, a million, a million self-help books, like, try to teach you that the, the concept and the idea is to forgive all for everything, but to put it into your bank of experience. So, like, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me sort of thing. Yeah, but then we but, always get fooled all, our whole lives. That's it. And, and you want to believe? And you want to believe in the great? Especially at Christmas when we're recording this, you want to believe in the greater good, right? You do. You do. You naturally want to believe that. You know. Okay, we all learn from our mistakes, but it's and it's hard not to when people show themselves not to not to sound like Simple Jack from Tropic Thunder, but like when people play the movies in their heads, uh, like it's hard for people, I think, to not cling to vengeance it's like a security blanket the i'll get you next time gadget style of thinking yeah <laughs> that was a couple of really good references right there bees i just want to mention that tropic thunder and uh inspector gadget solid references yeah no i i i totally agree i think that i think that's the, that's why it's hard, it's a hard question because uh, built into our nature we want that revenge you know what i mean that's instinctual that's that and it's hard I feel like as as we evolve in that and even just our minds and and, and work towards, uh, hopefully everyone's working toward, most of us are working towards a more peaceful life, you know, um, 
I think that as we as we really look at that, it's it, it's it's very hard to fight those instincts. Still, we're still not that far away from our uh, our you know precipice of existence. We're really not when you start looking at everything. And uh, it becomes very heady, and you uh, don't want to hear a bass player in a rock band talk to you about it. But the reality is, you can't fight all your instincts. There's law. There's there's all these things. Not at this point in our lives in, in history. Now, maybe a more evolved human or the next species of some kind can can harness it a little easier. Um, so that's why it becomes. I think this all comes back to why that is such a difficult question to ask because at this given time, right now. I don't have a good answer. Like I don't have a, a right or wrong answer because I don't know enough. And I know enough to know that I'm not pulled away from uh, uh, the beginning of humanity. I'm not far enough away. I'm not far enough evolved, however you want to take that. So, and so and that's just really, it's a, it's a great question because I love it. It's that time of the month where we get to indulge in all things music theory with Sin. Mr. Sinister Gates going to be here in a minute to talk all things musical about strength of the world. If you are enjoying this episode, thank you so much for being with us. Don't forget, you can also check out, we have covered Welcome to the Family, Trashed and Scattered, Not Ready to Die, and Roman Sky. Make sure you subscribe. We are going to be back next month with another absolute banger. There is a music theory with Sin on each of these episodes. Here we are, myself, Bees, and him, Sinister Gates, talking all things music theory on Strength of the World. We spoke about composers uh, during the main part of this show, but I was wondering, were there more rock influences for this song specifically, specifically for Strength of the World? Because we mentioned Velvet Revolver. For sure. You know, there's tons of influences. The main thing that I could point out, um, I'm a huge Megadeth fan. Marty Friedman is one of my guitar heroes. And so I think the riff, I think that was very Megadeth rather than Metallica, Pantera, yeah. Guns N' Roses. I mean, it's our notorious small group of uh, rock, rock and metal bands that we wore on our sleeves shamelessly at that, at that point. I think we were wearing a Megadeth shirt that day. Other than that, I don't think there was huge influences. That's kind of the blender, you know? Mm. It's, it's funny that, like, the reason why I thought Guns N' Roses for this one, particularly, the, this particular song, is they've just done a remaster version of Use Your Illusion. It's really fucking good as well. Um, mm. But what I like about that record is, like, one minute you're in, like, a car chase with you could be mine and the next you're in like yeah. an opium den listening to like hippie honky tonk of like you ain't the first so yeah, sit, yeah, but yeah, yeah. Sit, city of evil has its moments like that like we, we spoke about like sidewinder having like these jazz and samba and flamenco moments and like right. mia does more switches in one song than a lot of bands managing five like <laughs> but when it comes to strength of the world like and it having that kind of turn, that was why I considered GNR on this. I mean, there there was a lot of GNR at that moment. I mean, I was I was raised on on GNR 
too. That was one of the bands that I that I found myself. But MTV, when I saw November Rain, I mean, I was like 10 years old or something like that. And I, I just, everything changed for me. Like the vibe, never grew up wanting to be a rock star or anything like that. But the cool factor of playing guitar, that switch from, I know I'm going to play a guitar. I love playing guitar. Now, it's the coolest thing on the planet. It totally switched with that with that video, and I was obsessed with Use Your Illusions one and two. But the double album, I think, is is better than Appetite by a long shot. And <laughs> I think Appetite's <laughs> one of the greatest records of all time. So, so yeah, I mean, it it definitely did. When I hear that song, maybe I can hear a little GNR or uh, Velvet Revolver. But what speaks loudest is kind of the riff and kind of how Matt doing his like vocal stuff. Um, definitely more. Megadeth. Slide guitars, finally. They're, they're like they're so uh, vital to the middle of this song. Like, it, 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 was that something you did, or did you bring you or you brought someone in to do that? And like, what yeah. what is the, like for for people out there that don't know? Explain the difference between guitar and slide guitar, and also for for those of us that do, why you outsourced? Um, well, it was a pretty cool experience. My my dad played all the acoustic guitar. On, on that, which is very acoustic guitar based and the pedal steel on that stuff. So multi-instrumentalist, dude can play anything, great ear. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, he, he came in and like pedal steel is a fucked up instrument. So it, it lays flat on as almost like a, a rectangular, really thin table in essence. And then it has pedals that change forget how many strings there are, 20 fucking strings. There's a lot of strings and it'll change the tension of a bunch of different strings so you can manipulate chords and stuff. There's a ton of pedals. There's also these knee things that come, joints that come out from underneath the bottom of this thing. So you're, you're moving your knees back and forth playing these pedals and it's one of the most complicated instruments I've, I've ever played. I don't understand. I mean, some, some things are easy to pick up, medium difficulty or or extremely difficult. None of those levels or variations apply to pedal steel. And um, <laughs> I just can't play the fucking thing. So my dad, who has incredible groove, I mean, this is just one of the things we were experimenting with. It was just like, if, if he's going to like hire the guys, like Steely Dan, you know, Walter Becker, is like, once I realized I was being outclassed in the studio, I've outsourced solos. And it's not like Walter Becker can't fucking play his ass off. But, but there's a difference between a Walter Becker solo and a Larry Carlton, you know, on Steely Dan records and stuff like that. And, and so that's kind of my approach. I was like, my dad has seen more studios than I ever will in my life. And just an extraordinary player, amazing groove, played for a lot of R&B artists and stuff. So like real amazing groove. So, so yeah, he came in and just fucking absolutely nailed it and played with great creativity. 
Thank you, Mr. Gates. More music theory with Sin coming next month. So one of the defining characteristics of Strength of the World is its length. That's what she said. At a whopping nine minutes and 14 seconds, it was the longest song that Sevenfold had written up to this point in time, but that doesn't quite tell the full story. It's not accurate to suggest longer songs were not the norm at this point in time. Seven of the 12 songs on Waking the Fallen are all over five and a half minutes, and nine of the 11 songs on City of Evil also share that honour of being over five and a half minutes. Boil all of that information up and you get the impression that the song has always been more important than the running time. Well, it's a Western song. It's got to be theatrical. I mean, you're not going to just put out a three-minute Western song. What the hell is that? You know, it's got to be theatrical. It's got to go. It's got to take a journey. But I know the way that we write was more, more, more. Like, just keep going with it. Just keep going with it until you get it to a point when it's obvious. Okay, well, that part shouldn't be there. That part shouldn't be there. Let's let's pull this back. Let's concise it. Let's get a little bit more concise and get the, the picture across. But when I say we take away things to make it more concise, it's not out of consideration of how many minutes the song is. It's out of consideration of have we done our job in painting this picture, showing you this journey of what's what's coming out of our minds? Have we painted this picture enough with our music? And does it get the point across? Does it does it have everything that we want you to know about this image of ours? And um, I feel like... Uh, we listen to bands that have long songs, you know what I mean? Like it's so, and we love them. So it's, it's just what we love. So it's not like we're trying to extend a song or make, make it longer or shorter. We're just conditioned to both styles being like how they, how they're written, you know, um, dream theory is one of those inspirations. I mean, you know, I mean, even look at, uh, early Metallica stuff. A lot of that stuff was a lot longer too, you know? And, uh, I don't know. I think, I think there's just so many, there's enough bands that influenced us in the sense of conditioning us to, to be fearless, I think is what I'm getting at. And, uh, I mean, I'm right here on a podcast. I'll thank every single one of them. You know who you are out there. You could hear us. You could hear our influences. And, uh, you know, it's, it's been great because we listen to their records, love their records, and, and it conditions us to go in and uh, <laughs> foolishly or not go in and try to attempt a song like Strength of the World, you know? And expect that the that the uh, average metalhead is going to get stoked out on that, you know, like, <laughs> like oh yeah, they're gonna love this, <laughs> and that's kind of that's kind of how it comes about, though. Honestly, now that I think about it, like that's how we are in the studio when we're writing stuff. Sometimes we laugh because we know it is so foolhardy to think some of this stuff is going to fly with with our fan base and we just laugh about it we're just like yes this is going to be so much fun to see this reaction because this is it's it's fun it's fun for us to create that you know what i mean like that's the that's the exciting days in the writing process is to like sit there realize you've created something without maybe not the intent and then listen back to it and go like, holy shit, we're going to try and sell this to our metal fans. This is amazing. That's, I love that we're going to do that. Like it just, and I think it, I think it did kind of start on city of evil. I think that's kind of where, where we started doing that. I mean, personally, I'm a fan. I like short songs. I like songs that are short and, and to the point. I like songs that are, you know, long, but feel short. A song like Bohemian Rhapsody feels like it's a 20 minute song. And it's really 
like it would fall into one of our shorter songs. Um, I think it's like five and a half minutes or something, but it feels like it goes on forever in the best possible way. And I'm a fan of like one of my favorite no effects albums of all time is the decline, which is a continuous 18 minute song. And it's just like the fucking coolest thing ever. And then there's, you know, prog bands that will write an 18 minute song that I'll say, Nope, I'll never ever listen to this because it just bores the fuck out of me. Uh, so, I mean, we're all over the place, but I think if you want to take your fans on an adventure and it's more than just riff chorus riff, you know, bridge chorus ending, you want to showcase the musicianship. You want to showcase the vocals. You want to have these huge dynamics that, you know, these great, um, orchestrations have and in order to do that you just need to allow time you need to allow space um and that's kind of what gives us our sound i think you know yeah i think um we're slightly more aware now because i do believe that you can make an an idea more concise and then i believe in cutting the fat until you start degrading the art so back then we would just write these songs and we wanted to get this vision out. And I think there's, you know, sometimes 20, 30% that could be cut. Not and there, I have no like particulars on this song, but I know that um, sometimes you can get the, the point across in a more concise way. And I think this song, you could probably get it down to seven minutes and figure out some things and get it, you know, but I, I'm not like advocating for shorter songs. I think that's just part of getting older and more experienced at songwriting and, and saying, um, okay, what are the main things we're trying to convey here? And then, you know, let's do them as impactful as possible. And I think sometimes we definitely meandered a little bit in our earlier career. And I mean, the same could be said for later. I mean, we did whatever, however long exist is. That was but, literally, um, I was waiting for you to get yeah, to the yeah, end yeah, of this. Yeah. Saying, like, this is a, these are bold words for a man who had a 15 and a half minute song yeah, on his yeah. last records. <laughs> Well, it was 30 minutes. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so, um, but again, like that's a, that's a grand idea. And if you're going to put the last song on the record and it's like the emergence of the universe, but, but a revenge story that's got some Ennio Morcone influence doesn't necessarily need to be nine and a half minutes. Maybe, but I don't, I hate playing, you know, Monday morning quarterback revisionist history now, but we've learned a little bit more along the way that doesn't need to necessarily but again, yeah, you could just point right back at me and go, hey, the stage got some pretty, <laughs> no, no, your first no, no, single no. eight and a half minutes, you idiot. <laughs> so last thing to talk about with Strength of the World. Um, I love Sevenfold, you love Sevenfold, so this might not apply to most of the people listening. But when I was digging in and doing my research for this song, it feels like the gang vocals in the chorus of this song are something of a contentious issue. So I asked the guys what it's like to record a gang vocal on an Avenged Sevenfold record, but watch out, you might get fired. There's always one voice that's like, straight out the world. <laughs> and you're like, okay, who is that? Like, And so like, you got to fire people and then you got to like say, hey guys, you got more to it. And then like, it doesn't feel natural. Then everyone's like in there like, like straight out the world. Is on my shoulders. You know, if you're just at a party, you could do it perfectly. Have a couple of beers. When you get in the studio, we used to call them the Merry Men uh, because there's one on um, on critical acclaim where everyone's doing the, hey, 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 
And it literally, it sounded like, hey, hey, hey. You gotta roll the tape or what? Fired. We're like, guys, you guys sound like the merry men, like you're like Santa's elves or something. Like, hey, 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 hey. <laughs> it is like a full circus hour because the truth is, it's like, you know, Brian doesn't have a hearty voice. I don't have a hearty singing voice. You know, I have the complete opposite of it. And you got Johnny there. <laughs> like it's, it just literally all of us with the worst sounding heavy voices. And then you go and listen to these hardcore albums where like everything's gang vocals and it just sounds so tough. And so, and then you hear us, it's like the merry men and we have to do everything we can. And then usually Matt will go there and he'll, he'll save the day by adding a couple extra tracks to actually make it sound good. But, um, it's always fun to do. We can't do it with a straight face. We can't take it seriously. We look at, <laughs> I'm just thinking about it, it's funny. We look at each other and it's just fucking comical. But yeah, anytime you hear the Merry Men come out, it's, uh, it's always a good time. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, a lot of times you'll go in like with the engineer, the producer, everybody. We're like, we need as many voices as we can. We'll do it three or four times and then we'll layer them on top of each other. And you go in there and it's like, you think, you know, it's a gang vocal. Like it doesn't matter. It, is not, it doesn't need to sound great. It's, you know whatever personality voices are coming out, but you do want it to kind of have an essence of tonality and, and just not too many, as we call them, wiener voices that are just like not, not manly enough. You know, like when you're doing a gang vocal like that, if you're going to go for it, you want like, this is strength of the world. We got fucking big balls. Let's go for it. You know? So a couple of times you get in there and there's somebody in there. just strength of the world. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, no, 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 no. Your voice just cracked like 10 times. You got one of those wiener voices, man. I don't know what to tell you. The other ones is when we're doing gang vocals where there isn't actually a melody, like in uh, 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 MIA. We had a bunch of friends come with us to the studio. It was the end of the record, and we just had like our closest friends and a couple family members come out to do those vocals in, in MIA. And yes, there was there was quite a few firings, actually. Literally pathetic. What a tune. There you go. That is the story of Strength of the World. So make sure you are subscribed to this very podcast feed. It means you will not miss an episode of Tracks. And frankly, we got some really, really exciting things on the way. I have been your host, Terry Bees Beezer. You can get me at TerryBee666. We'll see you for more Tracks next month. Peace. Question from the DBC. Don't forget, get into the Death Bats Club Discord where you can ask a question on every episode for tracks. Uh, Matt, Stas666, that's S-T-A-S-666 with a brilliant question who asks, if you close your eyes and listen to the intro of this song, what do you see? Set the scene. Where does it take you and where did you want to take the listener? I see a saloon. I see a dirt road. I see horses, men in black that are armed to the teeth with pistols, and I see rifles on horses. I see women in beautiful gowns, ballroom dancing, a whorehouse down the street. I see fucking 
Red Dead Redemption. You know, I see, I see these towns. I see, I see these little pockets of life in the middle of the wilderness. I see danger outside of the town. Bad actors. Um, bad actors meaning, you know, guys that want to cause trouble. I see a bank that's got no security except a couple guys with guns. I see gold bars. I see, I see the local jailhouse. I just see this really interesting time in American history. 